0: Hello, and welcome to the Ellen White Podcast, a special extra episode. This is different from the monthly recordings of the episodes that deal with various issues. But this episode is a specific response to the cultist website interview with leaders slash speakers of the Proclamation website. This was broadcast, oh, a month or so ago. And a number of you have asked me to respond, you've asked others, and so that's what this is. The conversation began already with, Is Adventism a Cult? A Response to Cultish, Part 1. I and my colleagues, Matthew, Michael, and Greg, made some introductory remarks about the cultish interview. And so for an introduction to that, you can go, if you haven't already, and listen to that. That is on the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast. You can find it there. That's the beginning of a series where we will deal with some of the theological issues that were raised in that interview. We are not seeking to be combative uh, or start a fight or anything like that, just providing a response from the other side. Uh, We feel that that was not a balanced portrayal of what Adventism really is. And so we are going to attempt to tell the full story. It was agreed that I would focus mainly on Ellen White issues, since this is the Ellen White Podcast. Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. This will be... The first extra, and I will have some future extras dealing with issues that were raised on the cultist site about Ellen White. So the interview, if you heard it, it was quite strongly against Ellen White. Very anti-Ellen White. She was portrayed as a cult leader. Some of the themes were she's controlling mean-spirited, legalistic She teaches a false gospel, diminished the divine status of Christ, taught a false trinity, a heavenly trio, a number of these issues I will deal with in more detail in future episodes. But a statement was made that I want to focus on responding to, that Ellen White, and I'm paraphrasing what I heard, Ellen White is not really even converted. Well, anybody who knows Ellen White certainly would be surprised at that because that's just not what you find in her writings. But I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about Ellen White on salvation and assurance. And while this is a response to that statement, another negative thing said about Ellen White, I want to focus mainly on the blessing that you can receive when you read Ellen White with regard to assurance of salvation and her own experience of assurance of salvation. So to start with it's it's important to understand Ellen White's theological framework, her background, the theological tradition that she comes from. And her or I should say the framework for her theological understanding is what is called Wesleyan Arminian. She comes from the Wesleyan Arminian tradition. Wesleyan Arminianism is a combination of the theological concepts of Jacob Arminius, a professor of theology in Holland, known for his rejection of strict Calvinistic the strict Calvinistic doctrine of predestination and emphasis on freedom of the will. This was back during the time of Calvin. John and it combines that with John Wesley, the renowned revivalist and founder of Methodism. Numerous studies have confirmed that Wesley and Arminius were thoroughly evangelical and biblical in their theology. Ellen White mentored theologically from John Wesley. Now Calvinists, of course don't have a lot of use for Wesleyan Arminian theology. Uh, And both of them have been going at it for the last 300 plus years. I received a doctorate from a Calvinist seminary, so I studied with them and I know them. And I must say that I have great respect for John Calvin and much of Calvinism. The Puritans are all Calvinists. And as I've said in another venue, I'm a great fan of the Puritans. I have found in reading... Reformed theologians and their commentaries on Scripture, they have some great insights on aspect of Scripture, but obviously there are significant theological differences. Um, I do not embrace the idea of predestination and everything that they bring with that, the decrees and the tulip and all of that. As a a Wesleyan Arminian, of course, I I will reject that. Um, But what is noteworthy is that in the evangelical community today, Both the Calvinists and the Wesleyans, uh, Methodism, I should say. As you know, John Wesley is the founder of the large denomination of Methodism. There are different branches of that, the mainline Protestant United Methodist Church. Then you've got branches of evangelical uh, Methodism. But what is interesting is that both sides, the Calvinists and the Wesleyans or Arminians, they respect each other's Christianity and view each other as Christians, although they have these significant sociological differences, but they have so much in common with salvation in the Bible that they, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are respectful of one another. And I would ask that same respect for Ellen White, who comes from this Wesleyan-Arminian framework. So that's important for understanding her background. She was raised as a Wesleyan, so she stood in the American Holiness Methodist tradition regarding sanctification, although she didn't follow Wesley in all of his ideas about sanctification and perfection. Wesley taught that if believers quench the convictions of the Holy Spirit and fall into a habitual pattern of unconscious or unconfessed sin, they could make a shipwreck of their faith and lose salvation. Thus, while Wesley believed that assurance of salvation was a vital part of Christian experience, he believed as well that the Christian must still take heed lest he fall. That's a quote from one of Wesley's sermons. And that's the general framework in which Ellen White followed. So she did believe in assurance of salvation, but she rejected once saved, always saved, an idea that emerges out of the Calvinistic framework. So I want to, with that, background in mind, I want to discuss here at the outset Ellen White's conversion. Studies have been done on her conversion experience, and there are three distinct phases to her conversion. Now, there's some really good stories I could tell about each one of these phases of her conversion, but I will do that in my regular podcast down the road when I talk about Ellen White as a person and her personal life experience, her personal interest story. I will tell those stories then. I just want to focus on the basic facts now. So the first phase of her conversion experience is back as a young girl when she received the injury, a rock struck her and caused a lot of physical trauma in her early years. But at that point, she accepted Christ in simple faith. It was a very simplistic uh, embracing of Christ. She had some real deep struggles after that. And That initial experience didn't last that long, but it was not until another experience where she had a deeper understanding, or I should say she received a deeper understanding of assurance of salvation through justification by faith. And that's where I want to focus on her testimony here in a little bit. And then the third phase of her conversion experience, she encountered a deeper understanding of sanctification and that was a before the millerite disappointment when she was a young girl so by the time that experience came along she was secure in her relationship with Christ and her conversion experience but it was it was a process that that went over several years in three distinct phases so what i want to do now i want to go to my book published in 2010 ellen white under fire and i should say that in that book I dealt with essentially everything that was said against Ellen White in this interview 13 years ago from the date of this recording in that book. In fact, one of the chapters is entitled Ellen White, an Evangelical at Heart. She was truly an Evangelical at Heart, embracing the basic biblical Evangelical doctrines of Scripture alone, Christ alone, salvation by faith alone in Christ, But of course, she uh, was not in harmony with a number of beliefs by evangelicals, such as immortality of the soul, Sunday sacredness, things like that. Of course, she was outside of that circle. But in terms of basic evangelical principles, she was an evangelical at heart. And I'm going to show you that as I walk you through chronologically statements on her personal assurance assurance that Christians can have. Yes, Ellen G. White taught assurance of salvation. So there's five pages in my book in one of the areas where I'm dealing with her experience of salvation, and I'm going to tell you the year and give you a, a citation from some of what I have in the book. It's a lengthy section, so I'm only going to extract certain phrases that give the picture of what Ellen White really believed about salvation. I'll, of course, give you the reference as well, but the book fleshes it out in much more detail. So in 1843, this is her description of her conversion experience, that second phase that I mentioned where she understood justification and assurance for the first time. Here's what she wrote. This is in Life Sketches, page 39. Faith now took possession of my heart. I felt an inexpressible love for God and had the witness of His Spirit that my sins were pardoned. My views of the Father were changed. I now looked upon Him as a kind and tender parent rather than a stern tyrant compelling men to blind obedience. Now, she had some real struggles with the Father figure in those early, early years but at her conversion experience, as she's describing here, that all changed. She continued, My heart went out toward Him in a deep and fervent love. Obedience to His will seemed a joy. It was a pleasure to be in His service. No shadow clouded the light that revealed to me the perfect will of God. I felt the assurance of an indwelling Savior and realized the truth of what Christ had said. He that followeth me, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8, 12. So at this early and tender age in 1843, Ellen White embraced assurance of an indwelling Savior, assurance of salvation in Christ. And that experience, even though she had many trials in the years ahead, she never lost that assurance of salvation. And I'm going to give you the evidence here. So let's walk through Uh, I have this chronologically in the years. I'm going to just uh, hit some of the highlights. We come to 1851. This is from her book, A Sketch of the Christian Experience and Views of Ellen G. White, page 61. I discuss this book in its context more in my recent podcast dealing with Ellen White and the Bible, which is just an introductory presentation to Ellen White and the Bible, something of which I will get into much more detail, issues of authority, revelation, inspiration. That's that's in future podcasts from this point. But here's what she wrote in that book, which is simply a description of one vision after another, of those early visions. She said this, page 61. If the enemy can lead the desponding to take their eyes off from Jesus and look to themselves and dwell upon their own unworthiness instead of dwelling upon the worthiness of Jesus, his love, his merits, and his great mercy, He will get away their shield of faith and gain his object. They will be exposed to his fiery temptations. The weak should therefore look to Jesus and believe in him. Then they exercise faith. That, of course, you can see issued out of her own conversion experience. Look to Jesus, to the assurance of an indwelling Savior. His love, his merits, his great mercy. 1864, she wrote this in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, page 52. All those who could accept Christ as their only Savior should be again brought into favor with God through the merits of His Son. She used that word merits quite a bit, the merits of Christ, and contrasted that with human merits, or creature effort, as she called it. By merits, she simply means the redemptive work of Christ in our behalf. We have no merits of our own to earn salvation. Christ earned it forth for for us with his merits. That's what she means by that. 1869, in the Review and Herald, March 29, page 113 and 115, she wrote, We should know that we are enjoying the favor of God, that he smiles upon us, and that we are his children in deed and in a position where he can commune with us and we with him when a christian draws his life from above and strengthens his soul with the contemplation of things that are unseen god is honored because he takes him at his word he believes the promise and it is accounted unto him for righteousness so there's the theme of righteousness by faith assurance of salvation in christ In 1878, she was writing about Christ's high priestly ministry, and she said, He appears in the presence of God as our great high priest, ready to accept the repentance and to answer the prayers of his people, and through the merits of his own righteousness to present them to the Father. He raises his wounded hands to God and claims their blood-bought pardon. I have graven them upon the palms of my hands, he pleads. Those memorial wounds of my humiliation and anguish secure to my church the best gifts of omnipotence. That remarkable statement is from Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, page 261 and 262. In 1883, at a talk at a general conference session, she said, We must not trust at all to ourselves, nor look to our good works, but when as erring sinful beings we come to Christ, we must find rest in His love. God will accept everyone that comes to Him trusting wholly in the merits of a crucified Savior. 1890. This is a significant statement. This is found in Manuscript Releases, Volume 3, page 420 and 421. I'm going to just extract some of the key statements. She said, There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, does that sound like an unconverted person to you? Hardly. She went on, Let the subject be made distinct and plain, that it is not possible to affect anything in our standing before God or in the gift of God to us through creature merit. Should faith and works purchase the gift of salvation for anyone, then the Creator is under obligation to the creature. Here is an opportunity for falsehood to be accepted as truth. If any man can merit salvation by anything he may do, then he is in the same position as the Catholic to do penance for his sins. Salvation, then, is partly a debt that may be earned as wages. If man... Cannot by any of his good works merit salvation; that it must be holy of grace, received by man as a sinner, because he receives and believes in Jesus. It is wholly a free gift. Justification by faith is placed beyond controversy, and all this controversy is ended as soon as the matter is settled that the merits of fallen man in his good works can never procure eternal life for him. Friends, that's Ellen White speaking on salvation. That tells us where she stood with regard to human works. Human works cannot save us. They cannot earn us anything before God, only the merits of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ. She is explicitly and abundantly clear on that. Unconverted? I don't think so. 1891, from a camp meeting sermon, She's actually affirming some words that that she gave. She said, if you are right with God today, you are ready if Christ should come today. Your old tattered garments of self-righteousness will not give you an entrance into the kingdom of God, but that garment that is woven in the loom of heaven, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, will. That's from Sermons and Talks, page 202 and 203. In 1894, she was writing a letter to comfort a woman who was struggling with her own assurance of salvation. And she made this remarkable statement. The message from God to me for you is, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. It may seem to you that you are hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise and you are safe. Him that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. John six thirty seven. Present this assurance to Jesus and you are as safe as though inside the city of God. That's Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, page page 175. You are safe as though inside the city of God. If that's not assurance, friend. I don't know what is. Very clear there. In 1898, in Desire of Ages, she said, In Christ, eternal life is secure. That's Desire of Ages, page 356. That's a single sentence in a larger context, but it says enough. In Christ, object lessons in 1900, She wrote this on page 317. By the messengers of God are presented to us the righteousness of Christ, justification by faith, the exceeding great and precious promises of God's word, free access to the Father by Christ, the comfort of the Spirit, the well-grounded assurance of eternal life in the kingdom of God. Again, Christ object lessons 317. So very clear on salvation. That's why... This was a good opportunity for me to present these great teachings of Ellen White, her understanding on salvation. Christ Object Lessons, page 420. When Christ reigns in the soul, there is purity, freedom from sin. The glory, the fullness, the completeness of the gospel plan is fulfilled in the life. The acceptance of the Savior brings a glow of perfect peace, perfect love, perfect Assurance. Christ Object Lessons, page 420. Perfect assurance. Ellen White believed and taught assurance of salvation. And by the way, let me just say um, there are statements that critics will use, such as the, God frowns upon us, and statements such as that. All those have a context, and I'm delighted to address those in their context. Any statements that are raised, by Ellen White, to use against Ellen White, happy to look at those in their context, and I will do that in future podcasts. But here is 1901, and by the way, let me say these are all post-1888 statements. I began way before 1888 and went up through that time. As many of you know, perhaps not all, 1888 was a turning point in denominational history. That was a very important general conference. The Minneapolis General Conference of 1888 it dealt with the issue of salvation and righteousness by faith. Prior to that, second-generation Adventism, the children of the pioneers that were now leaders in the church, they had spiraled into legalism. They began to focus on the law more than on Christ, and they were quite legalistic. And Ellen White was aware of this and spoke about it over the years. For her, the gospel was always clear, and she was very concerned about this. And it came to a head at this general conference in Minneapolis. And of course, it's not my purpose to get into that. If you listen to Matthew Lucio's excellent presentations on Adventist history, he covers that period. And that general conference, while it was controversial, it nevertheless, in the aftermath, set the denomination back on the right gospel track. And Ellen White was a key agent, if not the key agent, in making that change. And the denomination became more Christ centered. After that, and the legalism, at least in terms of the church leadership, diminished. So now I want to go to a statement in 1901, and let me back up what I was just saying and continue. Actually, the uh, and so that trajectory of salvation continued to to run over the years following that point, and Ellen White became even more outspoken on salvation. That's when all of her Christ-centered books, Steps to Christ, Christ Object Lessons, Thoughts of Romant of Blessings, Desire of Ages, and so forth, were published in this post-1888 era. And the statements I'm reading now, such as this one from 1901, this reflects that. So, to a, in a general conference bulletin, she said to the leaders, Our Savior is not in Joseph's tomb. He has risen and is proclaimed over the rent sepulcher, I am the resurrection and the life. Let us show by our actions that we are living by faith in Him. We can call upon Him for assistance. He is at our right hand to help us. Each one of you may know for yourself that you have a living Savior, that He is your helper and your God. You need not stand where you say, I do not know whether I am saved. Do you believe in Christ as your personal Savior? If you do, then rejoice. That's a General Conference Bulletin, April 10, page 183. Very clear. 1905. She was writing to a woman on her deathbed, and she said, Our precious Savior has given His life for the sins of the world, and has pledged His word that He will save all who come to Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, John three sixteen. These are the conditions of gaining eternal life. Comply with them and your hope is secured. Whether you live or die, trust in the soul-saving Redeemer. Cast your helpless soul upon Him and He will accept and bless and save you. Only believe, receive Him with all your heart and know that He wants you to win the crown of life. So, these statements that run over the years, over the decades, are consistent with the theme of assurance in Christ, trusting in His merits alone for salvation. On her deathbed in 1915, before she lost consciousness, her last words were this I know in whom I have believed. You can read that in Life Sketches, page 449. And by the way, the previous statement from 1905, the letter to a dying woman, was Selected Messages, volume 2, page 255. So we can see from her conversion experience in 1843 all the way up to her death in 1915, there is a consistent theme of assurance of salvation through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. She's very consistent with that, and these statements are selected statements. They are representative of statements you find peppered all throughout her writings. It is a theme. It is the context for everything else that she wrote. Jesus and salvation in him is a major theme. Unconverted? I don't think so. Now I want to talk about Ellen White and her relationship to the Father in heaven. As I mentioned earlier, she struggled as a young person, a young girl with the her, under, her, her view of the Heavenly Father. That changed at conversion, and for the rest of her life, she took joy in the paternal love of the Heavenly Father. In fact, it was a favorite theme throughout her life, and she really capitalized on it in later life, and I want to deal with some of that. The paternal love of God. In 18 18- Ninety-three, she wrote that the paternal love of God was her favorite theme. She also believed that that was Jesus' favorite theme. Her favorite songs or hymn was Jesus, Lover of My Soul by Charles Wesley. That was published in 1740, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Now, I am drawing from my friend and colleague in Ellen White Studies, Dr. Merlin Berth, the director of the Ellen G. White Estate at this time and uh, well-known Adventist Ellen White scholar And he has used these notes over the years, and I have also used them over the years, and I'm indebted to him for that. But he believes that Ellen White's most compelling statement about the love of God is found in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. And I have also used this statement in my years of teaching Ellen White. I think it captures her view of the love of God. And this is Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5 on page 740. Listen to this beautiful, deep, and profound statement. All the paternal love which has come down from generation to generation, through the channel of human hearts, all the springs of tenderness which have opened in the souls of men, are but as a tiny reel to the boundless ocean when compared with the infinite, exhaustless love of God. Tongue cannot utter it. Pen cannot portray it. You may meditate upon it every day of your life. You may search the Scriptures diligently in order to understand it. You may summon every power and capability that God has given you in the endeavor to comprehend the love and compassion of the Heavenly Father, and yet there is an infinity beyond. You may study that love for ages, yet you can never fully comprehend the length and the breadth, and the depth, and the height of the love of God in giving His Son to die for the world. Eternity itself can never fully reveal it. Yet, as we study the Bible and meditate upon the life of Christ and the plan of redemption, these great themes will open to our understanding more and more. Friends, it took a lot of meditation, prayer, and depth to write something like that that sounds like a very converted person to me. In fact, you find that the love of God is a, the dominant theme of her most important works that are called the Conflict of the Ages series, where she covers the entire plan of redemption from Lucifer's fall in heaven to the earth made new and eternity. In five books, she covers that story, the story of the Bible from the angle of the great controversy. The first book, Patriarchs and Prophets covers the first half of the Old Testament, Prophets and Kings, the second half of the Old Testament, and then Desire of Ages covers the Gospels, Acts the Apostles, the Epistles, and then the final book consummates it, that begins historically with the destruction of Jerusalem and goes to the earth made new in eternity. That's the great controversy. Ellen White is very intentional in systematizing that. Story. She provides as bookends to the story of redemption, the love of God. The first three words she begins the story with in Patriarchs and Prophets. The very first words are God is love. First John 4. 7 and 8. Remember, God is love. You go all the way through the grand story of redemption. You come to The end of the story and the earth made new and eternity begins. You come to the last page of the story, to the last paragraph, to the last three words. God is love. She uses the love of God as the framework for the entire plan of redemption, for the entire cosmic conflict story. So without question, the love of God as displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ was a central and dominant theme throughout Ellen White's writings. Now another theme that emerges, a phrase that emerges repeatedly in her discussions of Christ and salvation, and that phrase is this, the matchless charms of Christ. Scholar Peter Van Bimelen published a paper on this subject, and he found this, as a, this phrase repeatedly throughout her writings. And while the exact phrase doesn't appear in the earlier years, he found that the theme of the matchless charms of Christ is very consistent in her earlier writings as well as in her later writings. In fact, she once told E.J. Wagner, who worked with her in the 1888 General Conference, she remarked in 1889 that she had been presenting this theme of the matchless, matchless charms of Christ for 45 years. That goes back to the very beginning of her prophetic ministry. Van Bimelen observed that during the 1850s, Ellen White repeatedly used this phrase and others like it. Here are three statements from that era. Now, this is early in her prophetic ministry. Number one, first statement, If Christ be in us the hope of glory, we shall discover such matchless charms in Him that the soul will be enamored. It will cleave to Him, choose to love Him, and in admiration of Him, self will be forgotten. That's Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 162. Next statement, in those years, they will look to the blessed Savior who has given Himself for them, and with admiration and love for Him who is smiling upon them, raise their voices and sing to His praise and glory, while they feel and realize the matchless depths of a Savior's love. That's the Youth Instructor, October 1, 1852. And finally, I lay down the pen and exclaim, Oh, what love! What marvelous love! The most exalted language cannot describe the glory of heaven, nor the matchless depths of a Savior's love. That's Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 210-211 in 1858. So... In those early years, she was already speaking of the matchless grace, the matchless charms of Christ, and then she would use that that phrase specifically in the later years, the matchless charms of Christ. Even her personal correspondence reveals a passion for Jesus and His saving power. An example is a letter she wrote to her son, Willie, from Camp Meeting, held in Oakland, California in 1874. This is what she wrote to her son. I spoke to the people last Sunday afternoon upon the sufferings of Christ. Christ crucified. Christ arisen. Christ a living Savior. Christ our advocate in the heavenly courts. Christ coming again is the power and the wisdom of God. The cross of Calvary is God's power and wisdom, His way of saving sinners. The light reflected from the cross of Calvary makes the plan of salvation so simple that children may understand it, so powerful that none but those who are controlled by the power of Satan can and will resist it. That's Ellen White to W.C. White, May 11, 1874, letter 19G. So we can see here that this theme of salvation through the merits of Christ, assurance of salvation, the matchless charms of Christ, the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ, were dominant themes in Ellen White's prophetic ministry. From her beginning conversion experience in 1843 all the way up to her death in 1915, she was assured in her salvation through Christ. Without question, this woman was converted and remained that way throughout her long life. Now, I want to give you some resources that you can study further on, but before I do that, I want to make an appeal. There may be some of you, and this is not, obviously, hopefully you can tell, this is more than just a response to the cultish interview. It's an opportunity to present Ellen White in Salvation, what she believes about the Bible and Christ and salvation. And there may be some of you that are listening that you're struggling with assurance of salvation yourself. Maybe you've been looking to yourself subconsciously without even realizing it. Leaning on your own works to earn merit before God. And Maybe you struggle with doubt and guilt. Well, friends, I'd like to echo Ellen White and invite you to come to Jesus. And stop trusting in your own creature merit. But trust in the merits of Jesus Christ. Trust in His shed blood for you at Calvary and receive assurance of salvation that comes through Christ alone. Through His redemptive work on Calvary and at the resurrection and His high priestly ministry in heaven, for you, trust in His merits, His completed work on the cross, and you can have salvation. And I want to tell you something. You will never be able to overcome sin and live a victorious Christian life until you accept that assurance that only Christ can give. You can never keep the law until you go to the cross and receive forgiveness, cleansing, and righteousness through Christ, justification. Then and only then will you be ready for the experience of sanctification. Then and only then can you obey. And we obey because He has saved us. We render good works of obedience not to be saved, never to be saved, but because we are saved. That's, first of all, what the Bible teaches. And secondly, as you can see from this presentation, it's reflected through all of Ellen White's many years prophetic ministry. So I make that appeal to you today. If that's something you struggle with, and for all of us that already have our assurance in Christ, this is a message to go even deeper and trust in our Savior and meditate more and more on the love of the Father in giving His Son. So let me talk about some resources here. I've mentioned already, if you want to read further, my book, Ellen White Under Fire. You can still get that book at Amazon or at the Adventist Book Center. Also, a very important article was published in the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia. For any topic you want to study about Ellen White, the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia, big, vast, thick volume. That's the go-to place. And Jerry Moon wrote a remarkable article in there on Ellen White and Assurance of Salvation. That will be a good framework for what I presented in this podcast. You can go deeper with that. Not only for evidence that Ellen White believed in the testimony of the Spirit in assurance of salvation, but, but for just to see the beauty of it there as well. So evidence as well as the beauty there. So that's a key place in terms of Ellen White and salvation. Another very important study is by Woodrow Widden a chronological study on, of Ellen White on Salvation. That's published by Pacific Press. Press That is a very important volume to have as well. Also, George Knight has written several books that are important dealing with the salvation issues, Sin and Salvation, God's Work for and in Us, part of the Library of Adventist Theology. He also wrote the book The Cross of Christ, God's Work for Us. That's also a part of the Library of Adventist Theology, published by the Review and Herald. And Woody a Woodrow Wooden, who I mentioned before, also wrote an important book in that series entitled The Judgment and Assurance. The Judgment and Assurance. That book shows how Scripture teaches assurance of salvation in the judgment, and Ellen White as well. Very important. Because some believe and critics often say that the Adventist understanding of the judgment robs the Christian of assurance. Well, actually, it really affirms assurance when it's correctly understood. And in that larger framework, Richard Davidson's very important study, A Song for the Sanctuary, almost a thousand-page study on the sanctuary, there he deals with the sanctuary and assurance of salvation, the judgment and assurance of salvation. So these are just a few sources you can read if this is something you want to study further. But again, I accentuate the single article by Jerry Moon on assurance of salvation in the LNG White Encyclopedia. That's the best starting place you can go. All right, friends, that's all for now. I will have another extra dealing with some other issues raised about Eleanor White in the interview, using that as an opportunity to capitalize on what she really did teach. Thanks so much for listening. And friends, remember, always test a prophet by the prophets of the Bible. Take care.